please, chapter 22, the book of Luke, chapter 22. And we are coming to the end of this incredible journey we've been on. Um, You know, total transformation is what we've called our study in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Raise your hand if you need a Bible. We'd love to give one to you. Uh, It's going to be on page 754 in that particular Bible. This is uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. We're going to be starting in verse 47 this morning. And uh, like I say, uh, we are getting closer and closer to landing this plane. We're going to land it right through Easter. All the passages line up, so we're going to be celebrating the resurrection right around Easter. And I'm very, very excited about what God is doing and will continue to do. The number of lives that have been transformed in the study of this. You know, we don't have a lot of gimmicks and things. We, we study the Bible. And that's where we believe the, the, the power is for God to bring about transformation. So thank you for walking uh, this journey with us. Okay, a little background here. Jesus is on his way to the cross, and we have seen that as he moves towards the cross, you know, everybody's against him. He was in the garden just most recently and praying, and he even prayed that God would take this cup of suffering of the wrath of God away from him. Um, but God said no, and he submitted himself, Jesus did, to the will of the Father to walk on this path towards the cross. And at the same time that everybody is against him, he continues to love the people around him. And this passage is particularly poignant in that the ones who are now against him are the ones who are closest to him. Two of his disciples will turn against him. And the pain of that, you know, it's one thing when somebody far from you says something about you or does something to hurt you. It's another thing when the the people who are most intimate, most close to you, do something to hurt you. The pain is all the more searing and profound. And that's what we have here in the story of Jesus. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. So he's there in the garden of Gethsemane, praying, sweating like drops of blood. And all of a sudden, this crowd comes. And let me remind you, back in the same chapter starting in verse 3, the story of Judas. It says, Then Satan entered Judas, this is so previously, uh, Then Satan entered Judas, uh, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And so they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And here is that opportunity where... On upon it right now. He drew near to Jesus, that's Judas, to kiss him. Probably some form of identifying Jesus to the guards. Uh, the priests in that day had their own set of guards, and so these were probably part of that guard. Verse 48, but Jesus said to him, Judas, will you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Remember, Jesus had warned them that it was going to get ugly. And they said, well, we've got two swords, uh, but they were kind of missing. Verse 50, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Disciples have a hard time getting their heads around what's really going on. They keep anticipating a physical battle. And what Jesus is painting the picture of is a spiritual battle, something that goes on 
much more profound, much more pervasive, much more far-reaching than a mere physical battle. And the disciples are having trouble tapping into it, but Jesus will keep teaching and will keep showing them this is something greater. Verse 52, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple... You did not lay hands on me, and we know why they didn't, because they were afraid the crowds loved Jesus, and so they had to find a moment when Jesus was away from the crowds so they could lay hands on him then. But this is your hour, Jesus says, and the power of darkness. Ominous until we remember the sense of control that Jesus has in the midst of all of these chaotic events. Satan gets an hour, Jesus gets eternity, right? Satan gets an hour, Jesus gets eternity. All this is happening, but it's not without Jesus in control and knowing what's going on. Okay, verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. You remember that Jesus had warned Peter, saying, Satan wants to sift you, Peter. So he was warned, and then he even said, you will deny me. And, 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 and Peter said, no, I'll never. I'm going to do anything for you, Jesus. I love you. And so G- Peter's guard is off a little bit here. Verse 55. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. So get this image of a very, very, very nice house, the high priest's house. And in the middle of it is a courtyard. And all the servants are gathered in the courtyard uh, and the people who've been kind of hanging around while the real action happens inside the house. Now, scholars mostly think that you probably could have looked inside of the house and seen what was going on from a distance if you were sitting out in the courtyard, which we'll factor in a little bit later. Verse 56, Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, that's the descriptiveness of this is, is amazing. You just see the light sort of bouncing off of Peter's face and she's making out in the shadows. She says, this man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. Now you wonder, you know, did this kind of sneak in, you know, Peter's thinking, oh, she's just a servant girl, you know, downplaying her value. Oh, it doesn't matter. I'll just tell a little white white lie here. I'm going to get myself in trouble. And that kind of gets him on this path. Verse 58, and a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. He would have had an accent being from Galilee. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned. Action inside of the house. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. The room would have been visible. And don't you wonder what kind of look it was that Jesus gave to Peter? That's one of the questions I'm going to ask. Can you show me that look? I have a little theory, and maybe this is Andrew speculating, but there must have been something like a holy compassion in the face of Jesus. I think Jesus didn't downplay the severity of what had happened, but I also think that in the midst of it, somehow 
Peter must have sensed the love and compassion and forgiveness in the face of Jesus. Because from this time forward, we see that Peter does not disengage. Right? He re-engages with Jesus. And so, I don't know what it is, but I'm using the term a holy compassion of some sort. Peter somehow sensed this invitation to return. And then in continuing in verse 61, And Peter, at that moment when the rooster crowed, and the Lord Jesus looked towards him, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Oh, can't we relate to that? And he went out and wept bitterly. There's a lot here. A lot about following Jesus and kind of when you peel back the layers, in my sense, there's a lot about engaging the will and the process of following Jesus or not, or disengaging. And so what I want to do in the time that we have this morning is just pull out four quick lessons on what it means to follow Jesus, in particular as it applies to how our will is or is not engaged in this process of following Jesus. So my first lesson uh, goes back to Judas. The first two are surrounding the person of Judas, and the second two surrounding the person of Peter. First one around Judas is this. It's not enough to hear good teaching, simply. It's not enough simply to hear good teaching. Jesus, I mean, Judas, can you imagine? I mean, how many of us would have died to be in the place of Judas? To follow Jesus around day in and day out. To sit under his teaching day in and day out. To, to, to have that wisdom being dispensed for us moment by moment, to watch how he did everything in his life. Can you imagine the privilege in the Lord? Don't you just sit there sometimes and wonder, I wonder how Jesus would have done this. Well, Judas got to see. He got to see up close and personal. He was enlisted in this. And I think about uh, the church in our country today. We've got so many books. I look in my room, my office. If you've been in my office, it's lined with books, Right? Um, I've got more books than I can read, although I'm working hard on trying to finish them. Um, and we're getting more, and there's books. And, and then if you, do, if you don't like to read, you can go online and you can listen to all kinds of sermons. Unprecedented the way we have access to teaching uh, in our world today. You can, you can pull up videos of the greatest preachers around. You can even pull up the old sermons of the greatest preachers, preachers who are long past. Um, now we're even getting a place of ones, you can listen to recordings of the ones who died uh, a while ago. I mean, it's amazing, unprecedented. And then on top of all that, we have all these wonderful Christian products that help us to learn more about Jesus. I went on the internet and looked at a few, um, pulled up a few here. You've got the Answer Me Jesus, which um, <laughs> says, for fun and profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T is what it says. Um, and it's pink, of course, because it would be. And then you've got testaments that we can have to help us in this process of learning and growing. Um, each mint wrapped in a verse of Scripture. So you've got all that. And then over here you've got the, what do they call this? It's, it's, it's a creche, uh, dogtivity, that's what they called it on the, on the bottom. So if you want to contextualize the gospel, I guess that's what you, for dog lovers... Um, the one in the middle here, you have Jesus died. This is clever. Jesus div- died for my space in heaven. 
Uh, and then on the left over here, you've got sandals that have <laughs> Jesus tread on one and loves you on the other, the bottom of the other. So when you're walking along, the only problem is you have to throw sand in front of yourself wherever you walk. <laughs> yeah, he's on the moon, I know. It's like... And then, I don't even know what to make of this one. This is a t-shirt, Bloodweiser. And at the very bottom it says, I don't know what it says. It's just horrible. Um, and it's some, some connection, and so this, this helps us. So we have all these things to help us, right? Um, but at the end of the day, it's all for naught. It, I mean, obviously, that's, that's humorous. I'm, I'm kidding about that. I'm serious about the access that we have to, um, to the gospel and to teaching and to learning uh, and good teaching, good learning. It's just like uh, any other time in the history of the universe, we have access uh, to this kind of learning and teaching. Um, and it's amazing. It's amazing. But it's all for naught if it is without sincere belief. If there's no sincere belief, if there's no engagement on a belief level of the kind, the kind of belief that manifests itself in our love for Jesus and for one another and actions of serving him. Now, we're not trying to say that you do these things so that Jesus will love you, right? That's works. But if your belief in Jesus is sincere and you truly do love him, then that sincerity will work itself out in changes and transformation in your life. And so it's not enough just to hear good teaching. We also must believe. And that was the problem with Judas. He sat under Jesus, followed Jesus, had all this opportunity and this blessing but somehow it never connected into his heart. It never transformed who he was. He never entrusted himself to the Lord. He never entrusted himself to the Lord. Now, on a very practical note, this is why we are set up the way we are as a church with our home groups and our Sunday gathering, tracking with each, each, each other, one another in the Scripture. Um, This is often called a lecture lab approach to ministry. Rather than uh, encouraging more and more information that we don't apply, one of the ways that we can slow down the process is when we gather together in our home groups to look at the very same text that we study on a Sunday morning with a particular eye towards application of this text in our lives so that we don't just keep taking it in without reflecting on how it might change us and transform us. And so it's a way to slow down the quantity of intake and focus on having it actually bring about transformation. So when you're sitting in your home group having a discussion about the text that we study on Sunday, you're asking yourself, okay, may I heard some things that were helpful, but now how am I in my particular context in my life going to apply this text? How is it going to change me this week right now? When we read our Bible, I find it so helpful, and I don't do this enough. I don't know what my problem is, but... If I just get a pencil out when I'm reading my Bible, and so when I'm doing, I do devotions in the morning, and when I'm reading my chapter, if I get that pencil out and I just look for a verse that I want to underline, which verse is God speaking to me through in this particular chapter this morning? And if I underline that verse, and then maybe I I write it down in my journal, and I try to reflect on it during the day, Suddenly, I'm not just taking in information with there being no end point to it, but now I'm actually applying it to my life, a very simple, simple thing. When we hear a sermon or when we're in a study or when I go to a conference, I love to just to, to, to distill it all down to some action points. What am I going to do? How is this going to change me? Is it going to change the way I think? 
Is it going to change the way I feel about the world or about God or about me? Is it going to change the what I do? Think about it in terms of your head, your heart, and your hands. God always wants to work on our head and our heart and our hands, what we do. And so what, what, is this, what is this learning going to do? Is it going to change me in some tangible way? And then to engage in prayer. Okay, I know what God wants me to do. Now, Lord, help me. Help me to bring to change. Help me to, to embrace this truth that I see you calling me to embrace. So it's not enough just to hear good teaching. Our hearts need to be engaged with application and, and sincere belief. That's the first lesson. The second one is simply this that we get from Judas. Um, and I hope this will be encouragement. It is to me. Um, some people you pour into will reject you and reject God. Some of the people that you pour into you pour your life into, will reject you and will reject God. Judas chose to go down the path that he wanted to go. He had every opportunity to turn aside. And as he had already gone walking down that path, God confirmed it. Satan was allowed to kind of get a hold of him and and sort of be the wind under his sails to keep him along that path and betraying Jesus. Um, And we see this throughout Scripture, really. You look back at the Pharaohs at the Pharaoh, uh, and, and, and he rejected God, and then God hardened him his rejection. And at the end of the day, this is really what hell is. If you want to think about what hell is, hell is the confirmation of our rejection of God. So we've had however many years we get in this life to consider Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus. If at the end of that time, we don't want Jesus anymore, God will finally say, okay, okay. I'll confirm you in your decision. And then that separation from God lasts for all eternity. And so we see this pattern over and over again. At the end of the day, um, people make their choices. And at some point we have to grapple, we have to make peace with this reality that people make their choices. And if we don't, all kinds of bad things happen for us. We, if you're like me, you, you blame yourself, right? Man, If I just would have been a better Christian for that person, then they would have come to Jesus, right? No, that's not how it works. People make their own decisions. They're responsible. And and even for those of us who are parents, we've got to consider this truth. At some point, we've got to to let go, and people make their own decisions. Now, we we have so much to say about that, especially in the parenting process. So much to say about that. If we, don't, if we don't come to grips with that reality that people make their own choices, then sometimes we'll try too hard in somebody's life to bring them to Jesus. And that can be counterproductive, right? Because then we're assuming the role of control. Maybe we're taking on too much. And, and then it becomes about us and not about Jesus so much. And so we have to be careful that we make peace with the reality that people make their own choices. Or, uh, if we don't make, make peace with this reality, we can sink into deep discouragement. Uh, this is something that I wrestle with. And I think sometimes all of us, be living in a place like this where there are relatively fewer, many fewer Christians than in other places in, in our country at least, uh, and many places in the world, um, we can sink into deep discouragement on this. And we, and we think about, you know, ah, it's not, we're not making a difference, we're not changing anything, and it's so frustrating and we have to make peace at that point that pe- with the idea that people make their own choices. And, and, and our Lord himself, Jesus, poured his life into many people who were unresponsive. Not just Judas, but there were others who were unresponsive. 
And so we shouldn't expect anything different to pour our lives into people and sometimes they will be unresponsive. And then that begs the question, well, what do we focus on then, right? And what we're to focus on at that point is faithfulness. To be faithful in the lives of the people around us. To be gospel witnesses to, the, to, to Jesus in the lives of people. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be faithful. We can't control the outcomes. And sometimes that faithfulness is, is very incremental. And, and one of the things that I feel that we've been learning over this last season under the theme commissioned is to be more faithful in counting the small incremental changes that happen in us and in the people around us. To celebrate the little things that go on inside of us. So let me just give you a really tiny one so that you think you understand how small I'm talking here. The other day I was with a group of, of, of men and, and, and um, one of them said something about, uh, uh, oh, you know, my, my uh, cousin goes to that same college. Some guy was talking about a college. He goes, my cousin goes to that same college. And everybody in the group laughed because one of the guys says, oh, so-and-so, you have family? And everybody laughed because this person is known to be uh, disconnected from family, um, pretty much talks in a hateful way about family, never wants to be around them, you know, would always rather do other things. And, and everybody laughed because it was kind of true um, that, that it was surprising to hear him say something about family. And he said, he said well, I haven't seen him since I was eight years old, um, my cousin. And what happened in my heart at that moment was, Everybody laughed, and I sort of thought it was funny, too. And then, I, and then all of a sudden, you know how you have that, the next wave is, oh, how sad. And there was something that snapped in my heart towards this person. Whereas the, the hard external shell had always kind of pushed me away a little bit, and I felt like I, felt like, you know, I wouldn't ever have compassion for this person. So, suddenly, something cracked in me, and I could get a picture of the loneliness and the isolation and the separation that this person's dealing with. That's a win. Can we just say that's a win? When something like that happens, when your heart is pierced, that's a win. Because now you are going to address that person in a completely different way. Or maybe it's that person suddenly um, takes a favorable stance towards you and your Christian faith, just stops hating your Christian faith. Or maybe you cause a little confusion in their life because they've always hated Christians, but now they know you, and you're not like all the Christians they've known, and they're seeing your love, and, and, and so they go from like negative nine in their negativity towards Christianity to negative eight, right? That's a win. That's a win. Celebrate the win, right? Just be faithful. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to be, especially in a place like this. So that's lesson number two. Some people you pour into will reject you and reject God, and it may be painful. They may betray you as well. Lesson number three, every disciple will be tempted to hide his or her faith from others. Every every disciple will be tempted to hide his or her faith from others. Jesus had warned Peter, and Peter didn't listen. He was sort of of overconfident. He said, oh, Jesus, I'm going to die for you. And then, I mean, it's crazy. The next moment, he's denying Jesus. And it's just like me. And I don't know about you, but I'm guessing you've had some moments like that too. And be so confident. And so maybe we should be careful about our confidence in our faith and our, and our, our walk and our, our sense of being a, a witness. Maybe we be careful um, because there are probably ways in which we deny Jesus that we haven't perceived. And God maybe wants to call us to a greater perceptivity around that. 
our ears should perk up, right? Yeah, I want to be careful too about this. And then this threefold denial comes. And if you look at what Peter says, it's fascinating. He, first of all, he says, I don't know him. In other words, I'm not in relationship with him of any kind. I don't, I don't know him. We have not connected. We're not in a relationship. The th- second thing he says is, I'm not one of them. I'm not part of his people. No, I'm not with them. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not one of those crazies. Jesus freaks, right? Uh, Anne Rice, who started a lot of this whole vampire phenomena, um, you know, you probably heard this, maybe some of you heard this story. She, she came to faith, and then after like 10 years of, of being part of the church, she just freaked out. She just said, I still love Jesus, but I just can't handle those Christians. She says, today on her Facebook, she said, I quit being a Christian. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not being a Christian or to being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. And she says she's, she's still walking with Jesus. And I, I, I'm, not really, I'm not really trying to, 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 to speak negatively about her because I think all of us feel that way, right? What, what did Justin McRoberts say when he was here? He said, he said, you know, being part of, of the family of, of God is sort of like having that crazy uncle around all the time, right? It's like, ha- you know, you have, to, you have to acknowledge that you're associated with this, the crazy uncle who always embarrasses the family or whatever it is, however you want to say it. Um, and, but, but, but that's what Peter's denial is. I'm not with them. And as painful it is, as it is, it's our witness and our testimony to identify with the people of God, not just with Jesus, but with the people of God. And then the third one is, he says, I'm not with him. So I don't know him. I'm not with them. And then he says, I'm not with him. And of course, this is the deepest, most profound one. To be with Jesus is not only to know Jesus, but to have him shaping how you think about the world, how you live your life, what you do, what's important to you, what you worship, um, what's significant, how you spend your time, how you spend your resources. To be with Jesus in that sense is to acknowledge that he's the shaper of my life. And Peter denies that. I think sometimes under the guise of being strategic, we don't let the people around us know that we know Jesus that we're one of his people, and that we're with Jesus. And we say, I'm waiting for that strategic moment when it's right. And what we're really doing is we're sort of avoiding the topic. And it's funny how that strategic moment cannot come for months and years and decades. And so I want to encourage us as the people of God this morning to covenant to let the people around us know that yes, in fact, we know Jesus. We're one of those crazies. And we let him shape the way we live. Unashamedly. This is perhaps one of the easiest ways for you to be a witness is to just identify yourself with Jesus and his people. You realize how that shapes your relationship with people, with your coworkers and your neighbors and everybody? 
as soon as they all know that this is your identity, this is who you are, every conversation is in the light of that truth. And then you say, well, I'm just a jerk. I don't want them to know that. I'm going to reflect poorly on Jesus. Maybe you don't say, I say that. Um, and, 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 and I don't know how to solve that. Except to say that, you know, Jesus can get the glory when you fail and when you succeed. So don't just wait on being a success all the time to let people know. In fact, sometimes it's in our, our weakest and our greatest failures that Jesus makes himself most known to the people around us. So can we covenant to step out on faith and just simply let the people know? If you're starting a new job, let them know right at the beginning, this is who you are. I was in worship this Sunday, and somebody said this to me, and it really, I've been thinking about it all week. Oh, in worship? What do you mean? Oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, you're one of those crazy people? Yeah, I am. Okay? Let's do this. This is, this is the easiest way for us to witness. So come out of the closet this week, okay? Um, covenant this week, okay? Because if you delay, it's just going to go on and on. And then number four, we learn from Peter that repentance, this is really from Peter and Judas, repentance is more than regret. In Matthew, we're told that Judas regrets basically what he's done. He returns the money right afterwards, and then he goes and commits suicide. Tragic, tragic, painful. And what's interesting is that Matthew tells us he does this when Jesus is condemned, before Jesus dies. So there's still time. But Judas never returns to Jesus in any form that we can tell. He just goes and commits suicide. And so we're kind of going to fill in some gaps here. But what it seems to me is that, that what Judas is struggling with is, is a self-focus. I mean, that is the essence of suicide. Uh, he's, he's focused in on himself, and he regrets on some level the mess that he's caused and perhaps what it's going to mean for him in the future. And again, we're, we're in a little bit of a realm of speculation, but we don't see in him this, this... He doesn't look in Jesus' eyes like Peter does, right? And weep bitterly, not for himself, but for what he's done to his Lord. See, that's the difference between repentance and regret. And this is a very important spiritual truth that I think we have to grapple with. There is a difference between repentance and regret. In this sense, regret is I'm sad for me because I've made a mess of my life and now I have to clean it up and live with it and it stinks. Repentance is I'm sad for Jesus because I have offended the one I love deeply and care about. Repentance versus regret. Looking into the eyes to see the holy compassion of Jesus. To grapple with it. To experience his forgiveness. But to come back to him. Peter goes back. Judas never does. As far as we know. Now, all of this involves our will to some extent whether we engage with Christ or we don't engage with Christ. And this is part of our dignity as human beings, to have a will. We can make decisions. This is part of the dignity that has been given to us by God in being made in His image. And so we have to be careful that we don't diminish the significance of our will, 
our decision-making capacity in light of following Jesus Christ. It's real, and we shouldn't go around thinking, oh, I just can't, I can't do it, I can't, you know, I, I can't. We have a will, and we're, we're called to engage our will in the pursuit of Jesus Christ. And all the while, we do that under this other truth, which is so powerful and awesome, and that is we won't engage our will always. We will fall short of living our lives in line with God's will. We'll fall short of that because of sin. And so thank God we have one whose will was perfectly aligned with the Father. That's Jesus Christ. And in aligning his will with the Father, Jesus submitted himself to the cross. And in that cross... He took into himself, as an atoning sacrifice, all the wrath of God, all the consequence of sin, so that when our wills diverge from the will of God, we have a Savior to forgive us and to get back on the horse and to live again, to turn our heads and look through the doorway to see Jesus' holy compassion looking towards us. And to know that we are always, always, always capable of being restored because of Jesus Christ. So Lord, sear these lessons into our hearts this morning. Help us not just to hear good teaching, but to live it. Help us to be faithful witnesses to the people around us without owning too much of their decision-making as it pertains to you. Help us um, to resist the temptation to hide our faith, but to be outward with who we are, our identity as sons and daughters of the King. And help us, Lord, to fall so in love with you that, that when we sin, we're not just regretting how it's going to make our life hard, but we're repenting because of what we've done to fracture our relationship with you and and offend you in the midst of your great love for us. And thank you, Jesus, for always welcoming us back in and sending us back out and saying, I am with you. Amen.